Welcome to the Always Already Podcast. This is B And Emily. And John. And today, um, in the midst uh, you know, of, a, of a triumphant, if you will, return back to the podcast after like a three-month hiatus, i.e. me. Hi, everybody. Hi, I'm B. so happy to be back. I'm golf clapping, uh, except golf clapping. I don't know what golf clap is. <laughs> um, we are going it's to just do... quiet clapping, right? Oh, it is Sorry. Quiet. It's a, <laughs> I, I, I like, you know, like finger waving and like maybe a little like snappings. Oh, I like a snap. Um, no applause, no applause. Uh, and we today are actually reading um, The Royal Remains, The People's Two Bodies, and The Indian Games of Sovereignty by Eric Sandner. And this was actually um, a suggestion from one of our patrons, right? That's uh, right. From, pa- from Patreon. Shout out, shout out to uh, Dana Logan, who is on Twitter at Pop Apologist. Um, and is in, I forget the name of the level, but... Uh, you too, listener, if you want to have a guarantee that the text you would like us to talk about is actually about, yeah, uh, you know, skip the queue, give us some money, we're just trying to model what the rest of the world is like. Uh-huh. Um, we're still and- trying to pay off our mic we bought a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly we've been hustling at this it's, whole it's crowdsourcing thing. Mic. It's a beautiful mic. It's yes. very uh, appropriate to today's conversation. Good <laughs> and, I, and I do have to say, like, I'm glad actually of the reading. Uh, no, it's thinking about. It. I'm glad of the reading that I like. I'm being not forced, but coming back into the podcast and reading, uh, given how distant I've been from psychoanalysis for so long, um, and the kind of work that I'm I'm doing right now. So, um, do you remember that oh once upon a time? You could not have a conversation with B without one of the three L's coming into. <laughs> yeah, I thought there were Latour. four. L's. Oh yeah, there, Latour, Lacan, Levinas, uh, Levinas, and what was the other one? Was Lumen what the other one? Uh, it was, was, was Lafour. But you had How a Lumen phase. Right? I did have a Lumen phase. I did. It was very brief. Very brief. <laughs> What would Freud say about your attraction to the L Uh, names? I don't know. I really wish I knew. Um, But it was a a wonderful period of my life. Um, I learned quite a lot. Um, That's a lie. Uh, No, (laughs) I I love Lacan still, but uh, still very not a part of my everyday dialogue anymore, thankfully. I think for a lot of people, everyone's like, thank you, higher being out there. For be moving on. Be moving on. Moving on from Lacan. Oh, that's like moving on from Lacan. Ooh, that's the title of your memoir. Totes. Yep. Or uh, discipline and punishes hit single. Yes. Moving moving on on from from Lacan. Lacan. Bees. Bees queer metal band. If you haven't been listening to the one of my guitar strings broke, John. One of my guitar strings broke. I was playing. I was actually playing the electric guitar. Too much. Too much discipline and punishment. Oh. Over, over control. Yeah. 
It's right. It's right. <laughs> Emily has Emily has has no interest in this. Emily's over this. <laughs> and good night. <laughs> but 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 listeners, I will say uh, for those of you out there who would like to join a queer uh, metal band, uh, I'm still uh, looking for drummers and. Um, potentially a singer and you singing the whole is, band. singing is really you know <laughs> all the basically the all band uh, all all the band members uh, and singing is not real singing it, it could just be like rah, 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 rah. I don't I, you know it doesn't it doesn't matter so. do you like a like a low grumbly or right. like a high pitch screamy you know the queer the better it's fine <laughs> um, so we have two, I have two announcements though before we oh, get wow. going oh okay um, so number one is that um, Listeners, here's the situation. There are like 20 books or articles, like 20 separate episodes that have been requested by you, the listeners, for which we are immensely appreciative. Definitely. Problem is that we're averaging about an episode a month and a new text discussion request or two a month. So we're just never going to do all of these. So the only way, like the real world, you can ensure your text is discussed is to contribute to Patreon. And how would they do that, Emily or B? Uh, log on to www.patreon.com slash podcast and become a patron. Become a supporter. Yeah. Uh, you all would have liked... Sometimes I, I get the format of podcasts. It's fun. It's radio. It's, like, cool. Uh, but sometimes there are moments that I wish you could see the faces that are being made, like John trying to very sincerely and straight-faced say, like, give us more money if you want like to skip the, rest the queue, of the world. but sort of cringy, <laughs> like, cringy smile going on, is like, trying to keep it. A... exactly what I was going for. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, um, good stuff. <laughs> announcement number two is that this is kind of our uh, our anniversary episode. Oh my oh. god! It's a it's a late anniversary episode, two but an years? anniversary episode, two or three years. It's three years now. Wow! I think it's no, three no. Years, right? it's, no, it's two. It's, oh, it's two, just years. two. Wow! Yeah. So happy no. anniversary! Has it, I think it's been three. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up, but you all up, you all like, like uh, gush over our wonderfulness. And all mm-hmm. the I'm like, oh my god, so I wonderful. love this podcast so much. It's three years of wonderfulness. Oh my god. Of course, I would be back for my first show in like three months on our third year anniversary. Not a coincidence at all. Any any luck yet? <clears throat> so we can get back on track. Okay, th- three year anniversary. So congratulations, us. Woo-hoo! That's great. Uh, our podcast is in the terrible threes. It's true. It sure is. Uh, <laughs> And so finally, what chapters from this book are we reading? So we are reading the preface, um, chapter one and chapter three. What are the titles of those Uh, fascinating chapters? The titles of these fascinating chapters are preface. uh, No, Uh, (laughs) sorry, I had to do that. Uh, Chapter one is entitled Sovereignty in the Vital Sphere. um, And chapter three is entitled Toward a Science of the Flesh. Right. Which I'll be be honest was tantalizing to me and i feel disappointed oh that's very i'm sure there's some psychoanalytic structure that explains that definitely yeah yeah well we'll investigate those psychoanalytic structures after these messages All right, uh, so I'm going to bring us back, right, with my question. Oh, God, what is it? a secret question. I hate thinking on, like, on air. All right. That's right. I'm going to answer it first, so oh, you perfect. all have a few seconds to think. That's <sighs> a short answer. Okay. Love you, John. Okay. You're such a good teacher. <laughs> Damn it. Yep. We went there.
All right, and we're back. And I'd like to pose a question to you, B and Emily, uh, now that we're back. And that is, I think all of, I would say that the title of this book, at least from the chapters we read, is not actually the proper title for this book. Interesting. Like, I don't think that there's necessarily, I don't, I wouldn't consider the royal remains or the end games of sovereignty is anywhere close to like the top five or 10 concerns of this book in some way. Mm -hmm. Equals two bodies, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So my question to start, and then we're going to go to one of your questions, Emily, is what would you retitle the book Mm. on the basis of the chapters we read? I will, I will give you my... Wait, like sincerely or humorously? You can do both if you want, but I'm especially interested in the sincere title. So my sincere title, it's either Sublime Life, colon, Biopolitics, Flesh, and Psychoanalysis, or Spectral Life, colon, Biopolitics, Flesh, and Psychoanalysis. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm convinced by both of those. Uh, Maybe one would be, um, oh, Lord, I just had it. Uh, oh, Lord. oh Lord! I just had it. Uh, I know, I know. Um, it was, let's see, towards a Lacanian subjectivity. I think would be something along the or towards the Lacanian political subject. I think would be it because there is another book called the the, the Lacanian subject. Hmm. Um, and then perhaps uh, psychoanalysis as a humanism question mark, and then something along the lines of um, the people's two bodies or something like that. But I felt as though he was having, there was some slippage into humanistic language where I'm not so sure Santner wanted to go. Hmm. But that was, you know. I want something with both flesh and phallus in the title. Why not just say that? There are lots of Flesh and phallus. So that means that you could get your sincere and your joke title in at the same time. Flesh without phallus. (laughs) (laughs) The fallacy of desire. Oh, 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 man. You better better write that soon, baby, before someone else. Fallacy of desire. That's, that's, you know, copywritten uh, vaguely and not really. Not really. Not really. Yeah. I what think if we're fun, okay, would fallacy place. would fallacy spelled like phallus, but it me- meant to evoke the other meaning? Mm-hmm. Does that count as a neologism, or is it just like a funny word? Do you know what I mean? I think I've seen it in like because it's like kind of a, it's I kind of a play called... more than the new word, right? Yeah. Us being obnoxious, and right? Yeah. Making jokes. Yeah. It's called humor We're, that's only what funny else is the to podcast? the few. Right. What else is the podcast? Other humor than that? to a small it's group. It's called humor for nerds. Uh, it's called always already comedy hour, which never <laughs> never manifested. It'll happen. I know. I'm still okay. into it. All right. Um, so Emily, you had a follow up question to that. But I think that's a really good question, though, because I was kind of. I had some. I was struggled to figure out why biopolitics which i think is one of the one of the things that's sort of circulating around our attempts to be like what is this project and try to read it kind of sympathetically like what are what are its um interventions what are its stakes the question that i had that i thought maybe we could start with is the question about about flesh um because he continuously refers there's like several different ways that he describes flesh and it seems to me and the question i had was whether this project um and its use of flesh was 
a way, whether flesh itself and this new way that he's trying to conceive of flesh was a mechanism of exploring the question of what's really going on there, which several times he says is kind of like the stake of the book, right? That what's the there there, or like what's really happening, right? That there's some some kind of gap between how we conceptualize something and what's really there. Um, or is flesh itself the thing that's going on there? I don't know if that is a... And I also didn't know if that was like a meaningful difference. Is flesh a it way is. of looking or is flesh the thing itself? But um, just... For reference to listeners, I, I jotted down a list when I was reading of, of di- various ways that flesh, um, various other words that flesh is linked with at different points in the text. And at some point, it's a seems to be a sort of linguistic phenomena. At some point, it's a kind of material phenomena. It's liminal. It's excess. It's also gap. It's also the remainder. It's also surplus. So, like, are those all meant to evoke something that's the same? Do, do they, like, you know, are those differences between something like excess and something like remainder are those meaningful in a way that is supposed to tell us something about what flesh is and does conceptually or really right scare quotes mm-hmm. around really i don't know lots of questions <laughs> yeah i mean as i don't know I, like as far as you so know, what is fl- what is flesh i guess is what the is kind flesh? of question uh and how does it appeal to, uh, to or what a flesh that... does yeah yeah mm-hmm. what does flesh do what is flesh doing? What wait? How how did you just phrase that question, John? Right. What uh, what does flesh what, does? What does flesh do? I think. Do. Is the oh, okay, okay, yeah. Sorry, I thought you said flesh does something, and I was like, what? Is it singular or plural? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Fleshes. <laughs> I was like, well, what is <laughs> fleshes? Yeah, well, what is flesh doing? Is that the entire project? And then on page fourteen, he says something like. Um, the fundamental question seems to be whether the thanato-political turn of modern politics is manifest in the Nazi project of experimentation could be understood as a return of the repressed sovereign power as an essentially atavistic exercise of the sovereign decision of life and death, um, or rather as the explosive and self-destructive force of biopower at the very point at which the sovereign master finally disappears from the stage, indeed as if his disappearance or at the very least um, complete impotence is what let loose the paroxysms of violence, and he's talking about, um, in this particular instance, the Holocaust. In which case, how is he using the flesh to cut, like to bring in? Is that some kind of interlocutor? Is that some mm. kind of like theoretical matrix where he can say, okay, well, on the one hand, there's the dissolution of in one or the return of the repressed sovereign power um, mm. through some kind of dissolution of you know, what state oriented the way that the monarchical state operated Mm -hmm. um, at the very point of the sovereign master's disillusion. Um, But it seems that is it dissolving into the flesh of the of, you know, of of human subjects? Is it dissolving in such a way as that his he's kind of coming at it from the standpoint that what Foucault is missing is that we're interiorizing these sorts of things or I'm I Mm. feel like there's there's a kind of question where. He talks about Foucault. He definitely gets like the whole um, discipline and punish aspect and and uh, uh, biopolitical aspect of things later in Foucault's work. But I'm like, is it that he's trying to bring the flesh back into Foucault? Right, right. So I, right. So the question is: Is the flesh the the conceptual theoretical apparatus, or is it the there? Yeah, is yeah, it the that's thing that's it. there? Right. <laughs> Can I answer your question in a very obnoxious way? Absolutely. Ugh, no. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Veto. More obnoxious the better. <laughs> Uh, yes, you may. Both. 
slash neither. Um, Granted. <laughs> so so let me read a quote that I was thinking about while both of you were, were talking. Um, while both of us were uh, This is page 85 to 86. A somatic sublime dimension that is, as I have been arguing, that of the flesh. The spectral yet visceral persistence of a tear in the fabric of being that perturbs the life that forms around it. But again, even there, there's like some indistinction between whether flesh is the object of analysis or the mode of analysis that persists. And like, I, I don't know if you can do this intentionally. And if so, then like Sunner's way smarter than I am. But for it to be both, you mean? For, for it to be, I wonder if it's intentionally both. Right. If like it's a conscious effort because he's so interested in like various zones of indistinctions and like the state of exception for the state, but also for being itself and concepts and language that in all of those ways, he's interested in the zones of indistinction that like if flesh is this like vortex that is the ultimate zone of indistinction and thus is both method and object of analysis. I could see that. I mean, especially that would make me, um, I think more sympathetic to the project. How so? Because I think that that's like, to me, that seems to be, uh, I mean, clothed in like drastically different garb, but like a kind of central aim of like feminist, you know, practice as scholarship, right. That like to, that, that, um, to sort of like enact the thing while doing it is maybe a different way of conceiving of something being the mode of analysis and the thing an analyzed at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but maybe that's kind of a leap or maybe a, like a, a stretch of a, of a comparison. So there's a kind of a performative <laughs> aspect to what Stantner's doing um, in the sense that when he's engaging, he's doing the act of looking at flesh, he's engaging with the flesh as well as using it as a kind of, a point of departure yeah. in analysis. I was thinking while you were talking, it was like, it's a point of departure and a point of arrival for him because he's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, Foucault's not using flesh. He's talking about bodies. Esposito seems to be talking about flesh, but not enough. So let's take Freud and Lacan and talk about the flesh by reapplying it to this sort of like purely almost hypothetical abstract. It's, uh, I'm not going to get into my critiques, but like um, hypothetical notion of this body. Let's reflet in flesh it and then talk about how then the flesh can be the site of the constitution of being through lack. But flesh that is also serving though. But I think <laughs> flesh is also the way that we explain flesh. Right. What's <laughs> right? flesh? It's like, flesh. Like fle like the mm -hmm. the kind of way that he sets up flesh as like liminal and remainder is also the way that we explain flesh as gap, right? Flesh as the gap between like what's really there and the way we describe what's there. I wonder if it's that there are, and this gets back to a point that it's going to actually points that both of you have made to Emily, like, are, is it flesh or multiple fleshes? Mm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, I wonder if there's a like flesh one, which has to do with the spectral yet visceral persistence of a tear in the fabric of being, right? Which situates flesh on the level of the, what, psychoontological or something like that? The real. Right. The real. Good. Perfect, exactly. Right. Yeah. 
But then there's also like a flesh too that gets back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, B, which is thinking about flesh and the relationship between the king's body and the people's body. Mm -hmm. And like one of the questions I have about flesh in this text is whether those are simply analogies to one another or there's some deeper connection between them that I'm not understanding. I, I honestly, and I wish I could have a better answer to that question which is to say i think that standard is making a relation that is deeper to say that they are analogous to say that like when he's you know making the claim that the um that the king's flesh seems to be dissolving into the flesh of the um, of the people in such a way as to say that sovereign power is now um it, you know it, it's it it migrates it seems to be transmigrating and then you know coming back into the realm of the state in which case now there's a kind of, um, you know, when he's getting into thanato-political aspects, um, which is really, you know, necro-political um, in origin, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it turns into, uh, you know, the element of what he starts to talk about but really doesn't get into in a very, um, I think, a thoroughgoing theoretical sense, like race. Um, and in that sense of, like, how racialized flesh um, operates on the scene of um, discussions of sovereignty and subjectivity. But, but isn't the problem, I mean, in kind of like very dumbed down political, in a very like sort of straightforward political sense, the problem is that when the body of the sovereign dissolves into the body politic, that it creates a like, a, a like dissonance that, that manifests as like psychosomatic, like, individualized mental strife, right? That like, because, mm. because you're simulta simultaneously expected to be the sovereign and, and subject to it at the same time. Right. So you, you as a, as a individual, like both constitute the sovereign and are constituted by it, that it creates like, uh, that it breeds madness, right? right? So the problem is that like people are bad political subjects because they're expected to be good political subjects. Maybe that's, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. something. So or that's, something. so I have a question then for you two. Would I be right, do you think, to say about this text that Emily, what you're identifying as like the psychosomatic expression of that difficulty and that another so let's call that a symptom mm -hmm. of like the, um, the the shift from monarchical sovereignty to people's so popular sovereignty so is is biopolitics as the management of flesh maybe a different kind of flesh than that flesh a, a symptom in the exact same form or exact same way as like the expression mm -hmm. of these psychosomatic illnesses and then the second part of that question is what is the relationship between those two symptoms and this, like what I called earlier, what did I call it? Onto-psychoanalytical or onto-psychological, yeah. mm -hmm. like flesh, right? And so there's a quote that I'm thinking about where these things are all kind of put onto the same page. And it's page 77 or 78. And so he says that there's this flesh of the gap, all right? And I think in the bottom, this is at the bottom of 77, and I think that's actually working on multiple levels and then the quote is on 78 my claim is that this paradigmatic case uh becomes the stuff of every one of our own private cases of a life in the flesh 
That also implies that the very topic of castration and the emergence of psychoanalysis as its master theory need to be understood against the background of the dissolution of the king's second sublime body and its precarious migration into the life of the people. So I think all three of those things, like mm -hmm. flesh as the ontopsychological gap, flesh as the king's flesh to the people's flesh, and flesh as the psychosomatic manifestation of something, are well, all bundled together there. Well, so then I think biopolitics becomes more of a, like, <clears throat> more historically contextualized as the thing that, is like like that which allows flesh in all the senses you've just mentioned to be governed or governable mm. to place it in a historical context in a way that like that like the emergence of biopolitics right if we're thinking about the mm -hmm. shift right from cuz i mean he's constantly talking about the shift from royal sovereignty to popular sovereignty as I mean, and he's not alone in this, right? This is kind of like an accepted sort of historical narrative as like the moment where biopolitics becomes the the like, I don't know if preferred or dominant or what the proper sort of qualifier is there, but the the form of of governing governance yeah. and, you know, whatever other words that go under governmentality <laughs> yeah, when, right, you're, right. when you're Foucault, right? right? And so like maybe it's that like, it's that biopolitics makes flesh both manageable <laughs> and manages it at the same same time right it kind of works in both yeah. both yeah. directions on yeah. it it like creates governable subjects at the same time it produces modes of of governing those those subjects right okay right because so if you because totally right. if you don't have yeah. mechanism for diagnosing <laughs> mm. the the whatever psychosomatic illnesses of the flesh in all senses, then you don't have techniques for, for managing them. And then it seems to me that, um, I mean, maybe elsewhere in the book, and I don't know if I, maybe I missed it, uh, then uh, Standard needs to do perhaps a better job of providing, and I use this word very loosely, empiricizing in a, mm. a certain sense, those modes of otherwise diagnostic control mm -hmm. that Foucault, I think, um, spent, you know, most of his career trying to identify. And, like, we can be abstract. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We in the Stantner sense. Like, let's talk about psychoanalytic theory, which in general has a kind of ahistoricized perspective about the human body and the mind, et cetera. Um, and then biopolitical conversations at least allow people to go into an historical, you know, boundary or region and say, ah, these are the things that are happening mm -hmm. at a particular time. People are going to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, et cetera, and that these are also being um, adopted by the state as modes of truth and that they, in turn, have an effect on how people identify their being in the world. Mm -hmm. And so if we go back to Stantner's point of view about, like, for instance, John, that quote, because it's been kind of percolating in the back of my mind, the right. tear in the flesh becomes a site of being. Was it a site of being or a form or a constitutive of being? Oh my gosh. In a sense, um, like you don't even have to go back. But like this idea of the tear in the flesh becoming the site of Flesh of the gap? Um, there was something about the very Goblin. first quote that you had. It was like the tear oh, in the flesh quote. becomes... Oh, the visceral persistence of a tear in the fabric of being. There. So it's as if um, being, I, I suppose if he's just sort of continuing in this, the grammar of psychoanalysis, that being continues to be constituted by a lack. And so... 
But, but... And I'm not so sure I agree with that. I'm not suggesting that that's Stantner. Like, I'm suggesting that's maybe what Stantner is saying here. Santner. Santner. Sorry. Uh, um, my T's are always going to get mixed up. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Santner. Uh, <laughs> sorry. And, but I'm coming out from perhaps, like, a, a phenomenological point of view of, like, everyday life and how it's mediated, not necessarily as a lack or as a subject of desire, but rather as something that... Um, happens in ordinary and almost mundane ways, which I think it's lost in a lot of psychoanalytic literature. But I, mean, I, I don't but want to I think that's what it. he's trying to do, though, right? It's to say that, like, it's not... I, I think he would agree that lack is not sufficient mm-hmm. to theorize, like, what's really there, right? Which is why he, like shifts between all these different other you know it's like it's the remainder it's also excess it's also a gap and and like that doesn't to me all of those evoke different images than just lack right when i don't know when you think of like i'm thinking about how you would diagram this for a class on like intro to psychoanalytic (laughs) theory right like you wouldn't diagram you wouldn't diagram remainder and i'm the the diagrammer i like to diagram give me I would. I'm on board with, with this, me, right? Yeah. Like you wouldn't diagram lack in the same way you would diagram excess or remainder or no. gap, right? Like the, right. they evoke so, different images, and I think that like maybe that's kind of what he's trying to like push psychoanalysis to do is to to like be a little more grounded or a little more real, right? To just to describe like something that's a little that and, feels a little bit more. Like or that like resonates a little bit more with everyday experience right. or something like that. I can, oh, sorry. No, one more thing. Ooh, sorry, God, that, that quote <laughs> that you just read, John. I literally I underlined that sentence and I wrote imposter syndrome next mm. to it. I was like, mm. that sentence to me was like describing everyone who's ever done a, a doctorate, right? That like the 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 paradigmatic case elaborated with the emergence of popular sovereignty becomes the stuff of every one of our oops. That wasn't me. Um, of every one of our private cases of life in the flesh. Right? Oh, I don't like private, though. Well, whatever. Well, I, mean, I, I still so like, I'm me, glad you said that. No, yeah. I like... Well, let me try to actually then connect those to the things that you said, Emily, and the thing that you said, B. And that is, I, B, I think that Santa would agree with you that there's some inability of language to grasp everyday life. And he's actually interested in, like, what are the psychic traces of that like structural ontological like uh meta almost metaphysical what to use the term improperly and imprecisely no, no, it's, it's actually why that's, um, right. that's, that's like the right term. inability of systems of representation to gr- account for in some full and meaningful way everyday life and everyday experience because one of kind of the terrains on which he's arguing that we haven't talked a lot about yet is that there's something about like systems of representation and representation as it interacts with sociality that like conscripts people into various relations and assigns them and charges them with things and tasks they have to do mm-hmm. without representation ever fully being able to represent their experience Ooh. in language or like in the realm of the symbolic or something like that. So that's another place where he's flesh is doing something in there as well. And I I'm not come back to sure. That. Remind me. So let me, but so there's, and there's one quote, and this is the like, what is the Foucault Freud relationship, right? Because he says, like, it's surprising for me to use them together. All right. Um, perhaps the most provocative, this is um, Roman numeral 13. 
perhaps the most provocative way of introducing this perspective. What page? Sorry. Um, Roman numeral 13. Oh, preface. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Meh, meh, uh, meh. I can listen. Also, be to claim I totally that... read Roman numerals. <laughs> Would it be to claim that Foucault's investigation of the proliferations of new kinds of political power and authority in modernity, what he ultimately characterizes the birth of biopolitics, should itself be understood as a crucial contribution to the original Freudian research paradigm and concerning the relation between representation and nerves. In a sense, I'm putting Freud and Foucault on the same team. Both hmm. are concerned with the ways in which a certain intensification of the body can be correlated with disorders or shifts in the resources of representation available to subjects. You know, it's so funny he brings this up, and the immediate thing that I see there is like how affect theory sometimes comes back to Freud and those theories that he has about like the like the that kind of intensification literate uh, grammar. Um, and it's funny that affect doesn't really come up that often um, as a means of potentially like bridging, um, which I think that he does. A fu- I, I don't think that I, I take too much of a like too much umbrage of the way that he discusses Freud and, and Foucault, which, yeah, it's, a, it's an odd pairing. Um, and he does a great job. It's just sort of like it's interesting that affect wasn't a part of that conversation because Freud was kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but like always identifies like one of the original affect theorists or something. But um, maybe it was the flesh and like things that sort of lie behind the surface of things. But um, that's what I got from that. Uh, and I think that, yeah, he does it. He does. I, I like it. I don't know why. I don't know if that made any sense or contributed anything meaningful, but that's what popped in my head. <laughs> that, you like the pairing of Freud and Foucault, but you, you're thinking affect and you're wondering why that's not maybe core to what he's up to. And maybe not even to say that that should have been his project, because I know that's what I love right. to do. They should have done this. Um, I would love if every we're book gonna I get read... There. I would love if every single book oh, I read said what I wanted it to say. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be a perfect <laughs> second reviewer. I'm going to be the perfect okay. second reviewer. I was going to make a similar uh, joke. So uh, beat beat it. Beat it. Um, so Reviewer number two. I, but I feel like, yeah, then, 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 John, I think you're right. So by bringing Freud into the discourses of Foucault, he is reaching into a certain degree of the everyday um, by way of looking at how maybe like what Freud is, lo- is trying to figure out is like what people are thinking. Ooh, sorry. I thought he was doing the opposite. Really? He was bringing Foucault to bear on Freud. Oh, I see. Okay, I see. What I don't know if that's that. a, if that's a meaningful difference, but to me, like that direction meant because oh. to me the the like directionality. <laughs> it's like right at the bottom of the page, directionality. Um, because to me that that changes the stakes a little bit, right? Like, it it, does. are you doing like a psychoanalytic reading of biopolitics, or are you using biopolitics to like to as like a tool to explore some some like core problems or conundrums that psychoanalytic theory um, is concerned with or lets us see or, you know, fill Make in the blanks. Make yeah, diagnostics yeah. or diagnoses about, right. Right. Because par- partially, like, I don't know, maybe I read too much into the, like, one or two times where he offhandedly says that, like, I'm really interested in the, like, what's really there. But I think that's kind of, like, a, an interesting, like, if you're interested in what's really there and you bring biopolitics and psychoanalysis together, to me, that's like, I would never think 
to bring those two things together as yeah. a way of seeing like what's really there. And I'm so, but I want to be convinced that like there is something that we can discover about what's really there from these two paradigms, like speaking with one another. And so the, then the question I have is like, which is like one speaking in and through the other? Are we just like, are they sitting next to one another, like having a back and forth conversation? Like is, mm -hmm. is like, Freud is like biopolitics, the arm that's puppeting Freud. Like, I don't know. I'm just like throwing very images me. around, but you know what I mean? Like mm. I, I want to, I don't know. I think that's right. Yeah. Cause it does change the stakes of things. Um, a little bit, right? It right. like kind of changes the, the, like, what, what do we take from this for the, the package up our little neoliberal takeaway, right? right. Like it kind of changes it. <laughs> I like takeaways. <laughs> I'll take it to go. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> take my fanner and flesh to go, please. And it's such a business term, too. It's like, what's the takeaway from Can today? I get the biopolitics wrapped on the side? What's down the pipeline? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Because then if we are reading Foucault as a means of how, yeah, taking Foucault and then rereading Freud. That's what right? I thought he was doing. That he was saying, like, Foucault lets us read freud in this new way that tells us more about what's really there than mm -hmm. what pe people typically think freud lets us do then i think that's more interesting than the way of attack like approaching it from like freud to foucault or like trying to attempt to sort of like see psychoanalysis in biopolitics but rather biopolitics in the way psychoanalysis emerges and on the scene was a certain kind of grammar about psychic life and subjectivity and the like yeah because also like historically they kind of, they emerge around the same time Mm -hmm. I I think I see the relationship slightly differently. And it actually goes back to a point you made earlier, Emily. Mm -hmm. And that is when you were talking about, like, biopolitics is both what makes, um, like, fleshly life manageable and what manages it. So seemingly that situates biopolitics as primary in some way mm. but it seems to me that it's ultimately biopolitics in the service of surfacing some like psychoanalytic uh drives roots gaps lacks excesses mm -hmm. so that like maybe and maybe this gets back to the is flesh a method or an object of analysis maybe it's that um psychoanalysis provides the theory of what's there and biopolitics provides the analysis of how what is there becomes legible manageable and governable mm -hmm. i wonder I mean, if that's yeah. but but like I don't, i'm not but totally also satisfied like still with that. what about sovereignty right yes <laughs> yeah where's sovereignty yeah. and all of it yeah but it resides in well all it's a shift in too. sovereignty that enables mm -hmm. the biopolitics to come in and govern what it is what it's right. surfacing from the psyche or something yeah. i mean i do also think my sense is that one of the stakes of this project whether it's like a primary one or a secondary one or a whatever tertiary one is like to recuperate Freud a bit, right? To like kind of rescue yes. him from general critiques of psychoanalysis, right? And he keeps com re coming back to like critics of psychoanalysis say this, like I'm arguing that when we read Freud in this way, we sidestep that criticism or actually Freud doesn't, Freud lets us do other things, which I, I'm like, okay, I get it. You want to, you want to say we still need Freud for some things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I'm sort of convinced by that, I guess. And I, think I could have read 
the word phallus fewer times tumescent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tumescent. <laughs> One time oh. is more than enough. Yeah. It's like really, it's just, it's, it's overused. Um, but I like the idea that then biopolitics you... and. Sorry, oh, I was going to no. ask this really stupid question. Go, you go. <laughs> are you sure? You I was just going to say, do you think that people who are like scholars of psychoanalysis ever like laugh about when they read their own work and they just write phallus over and over again? Or do they like take it very seriously? Like, how dare you <laughs> critique this use of a very important term? It's a master signifier. Oh, it's just a penis. Yeah. <laughs> seriously. Um, I wonder, well, Irigaray might have a few, you know, choice words to say about that, I suppose. Well, Sorry, that was a side sidetrack. I think that then sovereignty for coming back to like, okay, did the project get a little sidetracked? Because in some instances, I'm like, is it about sovereignty? Where is the sovereignty? What's happening in that project? Right, with is the giant already... caveat that we only read two chapters. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the, the preface, preface. Don't, remi- right. don't, don't forget. True, true. Um, that they're already lodged within psychoanalysis and biopolitics because as discourses they are still not they're not the fallacies are lodged in... the fallacies are deeply embedded within these discursive regimes terrible yeah okay, it's like okay that's it 10 we seconds and that's some it funky music under yeah. here this is the <laughs> womp, womp. but like uh but the, those kinds of discourses are already subject to kinds of um, power relations where one can use biopolitics as a means of uh, of what's the one justifying activities? One can use psychoanalysis as a means of um, justifying a certain kind of juridical and um, institutional approach to governance. Um, that these are not free necessarily from, in one way, they're not they're not just sort of free floating stars in the or the stars don't float, but they're not stars in the sky that sort you don't of like know that. I, if it's true. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's true. I, I don't know that. Uh, but they, he's they an do... astrologer. <laughs> astrologer. So, I said astrologer. He said astrologer. Astronomer. <laughs> B probably is an astrologer. What a... B is also an astronomer. What a phallic but, slip. I mean, so, Freudian, uh, Freudian slip. slip. <laughs> this is going to happen a lot. Patience, did dear you listeners. Freudian slip your phallic slip. <laughs> I did it on purpose. Okay. Yeah, I know. that would make sense though, right? <laughs> The, like in the in the way that sovereignty is already embedded in most of what mm. Santner's doing because it's there he's just not making it very mm. explicit because he's using these mm. discourses as a means of saying you know here are what here are these things that are happening but they're all a part of a sovereign measure the sovereign measure maybe may and could have been i think brought out i think a little bit more and made more clear but yeah biopolitics necropolitics or thanatopolitics as he's calling it and psychoanalysis are all hand in hand with a kind of um, set of human relations because it's it becomes at one point he says it's irreducibly human, which I, I still have problem like in the way that um, we can get to that in a moment. But it becomes like he starts talking about irreducibility um, and specifically about like forms of life and, and such. And I just wonder if maybe that's what he's assuming. I don't know. That's my question. Is like he just assumes that we'll get the fact that biopolitics, thanopolitics, and um, psychoanalysis, they're all a part of certain kinds of discursive power, like forms of power that can be taken on by, you know, certain kinds of, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Political institutions mm-hmm. and social institutions. So um, then would we say that when he's talking about flesh as the spectral yet visceral persistence of a tear in the fabric of being, that sovereignty is the spectral yet visceral persistence of a tear in the fabric of political being? Yeah. But it, I think I think hmm. in that sense because there's I a don't lack. Think so. No, I, I think, think there's a lack. No, but I think sovereignty is the the like 
the contextual mechanism by which we diagnose the problem of modernity for individual yes. political subjects qua okay. sovereign Sure, but aren't we always Subjects. engaged in this thing every day? Always we're already. About, we're always uh, sorry about that. It's been a while, John. It's been three months. Um, but <laughs> yeah, are we always like... already? That excuse only goes so far. Caught in this <laughs> constant conversation. <laughs> sorry. It's been three months. Constant, constantly in this conversation, either in academia or elsewhere, about how we feel in terms of making sovereign decision making in everyday life, and how we feel as being um, part of. Um, you know, the ordinary of walking outside and saying, I'm an agent and I don't have to question that. And so sovereignty That's what I say does, every day before right? I open well, the door. You know, I'm an the, agent. In the background. Well, maybe I've been asking myself that question far <laughs> too much over agent? the last few months. But like, Can then, I open this door and leave my house? I don't know. <laughs> then sovereignty is, I think, then it comes back. Sovereignty does become the visceral and the, um, the spectral tear. Why? Because it's visceral in the sense that every day you feel an impingement upon your being. When you leave the house and you wonder, to what extent am I going to be subject to violence? Mm -hmm. One thing. It's the spectral in the sense of like, I do have the capacity to make decisions. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And you don't question it. Mm -hmm. It's spectral in the sense that it doesn't need to be questioned. It's always just there. It haunts you. And then the tear in being thus becomes the fact that you are thus con you are constituted by these two seemingly incompatible and otherwise, but, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like forces that say you can do this. And Oh, by the way, you can justify doing this and feel you are you and I am an I okay. and all this stuff. So I know? have a question then. So are, sorry for that long. Rant. No, no, it clarified a question that I didn't realize I had. So, <laughs> um, so is then the, like the subjects of concern, right? Cause there are points and maybe in the later chapters, this is elaborated more, but points where he seems to kind of suggest that, like, there's a, a way out of the kind of, like, sickness of modernity, right? That you could just, like, alludes to it at a couple short places that, like, oh, we could, like, you know, you mm -hmm. do it, <clears throat> you invert the paradigm somehow, right? So, like, so are the subjects that are of concern politically, are they the, like, the good subjects who have been disciplined like properly or are the subjects of concern the like sick subjects <laughs> like are we trying to make the good subjects sick or are we trying to heal the sick subjects to be like good subjects i think it's a wreck i think he's you know trying I mean? just to recognize that all subjects are sick mm -hmm. regardless mm -hmm. of whether we think yeah. they're sick or healthy right so like right so to point out that even good subjects are sick subjects <laughs> i mean yes. I, this is like oversimplifying the terminology and creating boxes but no, do you know what fine. i mean like like because yeah. what what's the like fallout of this politically is is like i think a state a stake of um what's at stake is whether we like it when we are subjectivized like totally or when we experience dissonance like which one do we prefer yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> right well in the epilogue which i read briefly before we uh earlier today um like the two figures are bartleby like get in line santner um and um uh, uh, Samuel Beckett novel, short story, I forget. I would have to look, right? So we should note that, so the first part of the book is like the sovereignty, psychoanalysis, biopolitics part, and the second book is thinking through all the problematics he set up in the realm of aesthetics. Yeah. And right, we didn't read those chapters. That, 
you know, because like I don't know enough about Rilke. Right. Oh. But I guess I'm thinking. How okay, dare you, John? Think about it in a kind of like contemporary sort of like sort of classic contemporary like feminist debate, right? Like, are we saying that we want everyone to be like a woman mm. who refuses? the demands of patriarchy or do we want everyone to be Sarah Palin? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I, obviously we don't, but do you know what, like what's the, like who are the subjects that we're worried about sort of recuperating from or, or like whose, whose reality are we trying to draw or, or trying to highlight or trying to bring out? Are we trying to like d- look at the there, there of the woman who is like completely like complicit in perpetuating patriarchal norms or are we like looking at the there there of the woman who's like resisting the demands of it do you know what i mean i mean but i have a follow yeah i have a follow-up question i think it's i think we maybe get a hint at the answer and that like the paradigmatic figure and the preface is schraber right right like you know mythologized by freud Deleuze guattari so on and so forth who is mad but in his madness like understands all of the things mm-hmm. right he understands the the terror and the fabric of being like he is in he's like living in that cut of the wound of that fabric of being mm-hmm. which makes which arguably makes santner like a weird delusion <laughs> in some oh. weird way like which i i would not make that claim and i think he would very strongly resist that claim but i think mm-hmm. you could i think if you, one could make that claim um, so like that's one possible answer, and thus to go with your analogy, Emily. Uh, I mean, it's not a perfect us... analogy, but it's kind of like yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's like rec- I think a it's... recognizable like cast of characters, yeah, right? Kind of right? I think <laughs> it's like we become, we all become Valerie Solanus. <laughs> is that that's... is that what we become? <laughs> I I think that. I think that, like, if... if, if I love if, today. Yeah, if, today is good for the soul. If my interpretation of the answer... That part of the answer is in Schreber, then in Emily's analogy, part of the answer is in Valerie Solanus. All right. Okay. I, I just, <laughs> and, I, and I think that's the time where we go to just critique this Okay, book. yay. You know, okay, so I, I wanted to quote Spillers real fast. Yeah. Um, so as of, you know, throughout the entire piece, uh, Santner only seems to talk about race in the general, but we all know that that race tends to be a particular um, Eurocentric, ver- you know, version um, of, you know, the gendered white, you know, gendered white male. There we go. Assistant white male. Able-bodied in many instances. But here we have um, Spillers in... Um, her original article in 1987 saying, look, I would wa- I want to make a decision. Is that Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe? Mama's baby? Uh, ma- uh, baby, Papa's Maybe. Um, but I would like to make the distinction, this is on page 67 of that uh, article in Diacritics, um, in this case between body and flesh and, one impo- um, and impose that distinction as the central one between captive and liberated subject positions. In that sense, before the body, there is the flesh, that zero degree of social conceptualization that does not escape concealment under the brush of discourse or the reflexes of iconography. If we think of the flesh as a primary narrative, then we mean it's seared, divided, ripped apartness, riveted to the ship's hull, fallen, or escaped overboard. And she later says... The flesh is the concentration of ethnicity that contemporary discourse neither acknowledges nor discourses away. It is this flesh and blood entity and the vestibule or preview of a colonized North America that is essentially rejected, and then I just bracketed off to summarize, from Western conceptions of the female body. 
Um, and so race in all of its, um, you know, particularly rooted um, and otherwise, you know, disturbingly um, uh, and, and problematized um, genealogies in Western discourse doesn't even make it into um, this book about the flesh. Yeah. I know. I mean, for me, I was like, you can't talk about the shift from like royal sovereignty to popular sovereignty without, I mean, ground, grounding that in the slavery, story of sla yeah. slavery and colonialism. It and just you, like doesn't make sense. And you just mentioned like who are we supposed to be and like perhaps what does resistance looks like? Well, yeah. resistance looks like a lot and it's varied and it depends entirely upon certain kinds of contexts. Um, and those contexts are the racialization of, of bodies. Those contexts are the engendering of bodies and the classed aspects um, and the, the economics thereof um, of those bodies. And so and, and the flesh obviously is being incorporated within that. So it becomes a, I think, a problematic that's not really it's, it's only brushed over by the use of the term race as if and race thus, should be doing the work. Yes. And, like, I think some of what's good about this critique so far is that, like, I think we're all – so what I, what I have uh, frustrations with my students is it's not just to be, like, that person doesn't talk about race, but, like, what are the effects of that in their project and how their project yeah. look differently, right? And so that's what we're doing. And I think another way that that might work is that I wonder if – we think about Spillers or think about like Spillers and the Afro-pessimists in relation to what Sanders doing. Or even if Sanaa, we... I mean like. Yeah, 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 exactly. As if we might say that like one of the things that covers over this gap in being or that makes this gap in being like livable as a coherent subject is if you are white and thus ontologically able to be a subject and a human yeah. against those and so you against black people against blackness and thus like you acquire a closure of that gap or like a suture of that gap like through your whiteness right yeah. through white supremacy suturing the gap thus like desymptomizing or like depathologizing some of this gap so that it's not so lived impinging whatever right that like the 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 anti-blackness is like is the um what's the word like prophylactic against like the symptomization of that gap mm -hmm. in being. Yeah. And I think that it becomes a, a point of where I think I, I mentioned earlier, I don't know if it was during the recording or pre-recording where there's a kind of a betrayal of a humanism there because then, you know, yeah. in light, he slips in the, you know, the European subject or even the subject of Europe um, within mm. these kinds of articulations of what, it means to be, you know, to to be a part of the apparatus, to have diagno to be diagnosed at all, to be legibly diagnosed, um, and then to participate in um, political movements of sovereignty, um, which dispels an entire, you know, historical, um, you know, what he says. He keeps saying investiture, um, yeah. but I find it really. I know, which is kind of funny language in and of itself, right? Then, when you think about slavery right and i'm like look at how much yeah i mean if we're thinking through then what people are doing in the everyday which is i'm coming back to that um making investments and somehow making it this could be if, if santner is making this a liberatory project then it falls short because we need to start asking why is it the case that we have affective investments in certain kinds of things like uh john uh, you mentioned the epilogue he talks about bartleby um, well, Cyan um, Ngai says in Ugly Feelings, ah, mm -hmm. the, the idea of the confidence man and tone in Melville is that 
There can be a creation of a false tone in which confidence isn't something necessarily owned. It's just sort of there. That's why we have confidence in like the, the stock market. We have confidence in politics in general that it's going to move forward. Um, but it's false. Um, it doesn't come from anything other than a kind of a certain affective buildup of things that allow us to get or, by. Or in his terms, it comes from the like suturing of the gap, right, that John talked about. Oh, yeah. that, that's like premised on a subject position that's not about sovereignty but about race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That like mm-hmm. the con the or, or those that cannot mm-hmm. participate in those investments too. It's like tone would then disallow certain folks from being a participant in that confidence game that you know that Ingai is talking about in Melville. And so yeah. it's a it's a kind yeah. of like it helps to it actually so these affective impinge, or these affective attachments in the everyday actually help to build up a kind of ideological is kind of working from the bottom up in a way um, an ideal ideological perpetuity and so all of a sudden we have the the condition where you know w- what does resistance look like well it might not look like throwing off the shackles of capitalism or throwing off the shackles of psychoanalysis or the phallus. Um, it might look like <laughs> a lot of off the very the shackles off the of the pee. You know, it's like these look differently because we all just did weird bop. We dance, did, yeah. By the way. <laughs> we don't know what that means. I, I, we're on board, <laughs> guys. I just had a dream Some for things. one or several wolves. <laughs> oh, this is definitely a dream time. This is definitely dream analysis. Um, sorry, but, sorry. No, no, no. Because there is this differential way that we are all attaching ourselves in order to get by. Yeah. Right. It's about carrying on in everyday life. Like Lauren Ballant's uh, cruel optimism mm. and um, Ingai's work. And um, recently Andrea Long Chu's work, shout out to my girl at uh, NYU. But, you know, there's just a lot there that just doesn't seem to be explored. Um, although it does have its roots in psychoanalysis, like affect have its, has its roots there. And so does attachment, and so does certain kind of theories of ideology, but not really here in its racialized, gendered, and other kinds of dimensions. But but that I, then raises the question of whether, like, similarly, the fact that he's not engaging with Eri Gray or like feminist psychoanalysis yeah. at all, like what that does to the work he's doing. Because I wonder if, like, if we think that, uh, like, white supremacy like sutures over the gap for white people, like, does uh, does patriarchy like suture over that gap for men vis-a-vis women right by like promising the countability the wholeness the, the like confidence. positive <laughs> the confidence to yeah. go to b's term exactly yeah. right so like in that in chapter three with like Santner's like really long discussion of the phallus um oh my god uh really long um, i know like, I, I, was, that. I didn't want I to make was, a statement I, uh, like, I, I wanted, I was like, all right, well, what would Yuri Garay say to all of this? Yeah. And Spillers helps partly answer that question in the way that Spillers talks about gender in Mama's Maybe, Papa's Baby, and in other of her works on Freud and psychoanalysis. But also, but also family, which I think is something interesting yeah. that, like, is kind of missing a bit from his discussion of, of Lacan and Freud, but which, like, Fanon mm-hmm. takes up, for example, and Hortense Spillers, mm-hmm. that, that, like... That, yeah. like, one thing that there's, like, um, and I think in an interesting way for both of them, for, for Fanon and for Spillers, the family is both the mode of analysis mm-hmm. and some the thing analyzed to an extent, yes. right? Because it's Absolutely. kind of like the microcosm of society, but it's it, there's a, a version of it that then 
serves mm-hmm. as the mechanism against which the the other or the excess or the gap is kind of judged and then incorporated, right? And so, so that like one of the problems of like you know black female subjectivity post slavery is like the psychic access to the position of mother in the like white western paradigm right Mm -hmm. that like that whole experience is laden with the experience of loss of actual like visceral fleshly loss not lack Mm -hmm. like (laughs) like a deep rupture not not a excess not a remainder but like a violent there yeah a A violent violent there there there. (laughs) yeah that like I don't know. And that and that is exact. So at one point, Spillers mentions the captive body re- is reduced to a thing. So at the same time, in a stunning contradiction, the captive body is reduced to a thing, becoming being for the captor. Which reminds me of a quote from um, Spivak, in which, and in fact, I think Spillers like uh, kind of had originated this kind of perspective in the sense that it was through the Middle Passage that the being of Europe, the ego of Europe, comes into view in the first place. That's where it's birthed. Um, by identifying that other in this weird Hegelian kind of slippage. But, you know, in this other... Winter talks about that. And Winter talks about it. uh, And and Spillers certainly um, has a a degree of um, conversation in Mama's uh, Baby, Papa's Maybe. And then um, Spivak and Ken the Subaltern speak is saying, like, all of these get reinforced. Like, all of these things in the violent rupturing of this other reinforce the ego. And thus, perhaps Santner, not to suggest, you know, not to be too suggestive, doesn't really need to talk about it. Why? Because the ego of, you know, of the European psychoanalytic subject is already there. It's there. Um, and in such a way, that absence was in one sense or another already to be expected. Hmm. Right. And that's that's one fear I have sometimes reading some of these um, these books is that this absence is going to be there because it's already expected to be there because here um, the captive body in this way is reduced to a becoming being for the captor. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question we should ask back to the book, right. Is that like, can you talk about modern sovereignty and biopolitics without talking about the history of colonialism and slavery? And like, if you can, why? And, and did you do that successfully? Mm -hmm. Right. Like presumably, he would say, yes, you can, because I did, and here's why I did. And so maybe our trouble is, like, you know, that's, that's like, the kind of place where we rub up against it and say, like, well, we would argue you can't and you didn't. So, so like, we have to take, we have to take your analysis of, of sovereignty and all the things we're learning about it with a little bit of a, of a grain of salt. Or we have to ask back to it in each moment where it reaches a conclusion, like, does the same still hold when we take colonialism and slavery as the primary like paradigmatic case right. of of flesh or, or or whatever we want to call it or biopolitics biopolitics yeah yeah, is, yeah yeah sorry yeah and can i say or no and flesh too and, even? and sovereignty potentially like, a kind of like condition of sovereign of modern well, sovereignty where's, or something? where's where sovereignty flesh and biopolitics fold in on each other okay yeah is colonialism and slavery yeah, exactly mm-hmm. yeah okay and the ordinary circumstances of life that come out of that and this is where uh, just one more yeah. thing from my perspective of how forms of life are being used because it's interesting that through the chapters that we read um you know santner is kind of trying to avoid humanism he really is he's trying to avoid that that uh 
form of, of life and he, he sort of articulates it as when we say form of life Wait, do you mean humanism as in the like the essentializing okay of, like, like european enlightenment okay. yeah <clears throat> and he wants to avoid that it seems that he, he he's proactively doing it um and he does that through um critiquing how some authors use form of like forms of life but i kind of come back because i've been using that a lot and i've been questioning this myself in my own work but forms of life taken from, from say like i know this sounds so pretentious but like say wittgenstein um in the way that he talks i know I don't read him as language, game, and proposition, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I read him as a sociologist. I know it's probably not correct, and people are going to hate me for saying that. But I feel like Wittgenstein in Forms of Life is talking about this like a contextualized mode of being with each other, like mm. in a world that's shared through language. The form of life isn't necessarily, in this sense, totally 100% human. It's a part of a complex of varying kinds of um, you know, things that come together and give meaning to life. Life isn't just human life. Life is what meaning is. I mean, I suppose then life is tantamount to a certain kind of meaning mm -hmm. that's there. Um, and so forms of meaning um, become more meaningful to me uh, in, in those kinds of discussions that I don't think Santner kind of touched base on. But anyway, that's... Yeah. I, I well, I guess, like, I guess if you think about meaning making or whatever that you want to call that process as like a form of yeah. flourishing then he like sort of tries to get there right and mm -hmm. he doesn't want to say that there's like the problem isn't that there's one way to flourish properly and modern subjects fail to do it the problem is that they're the like subject can't make between... appropriate meaning in the realm of the symbolic or something well right that yeah. there's a gap between yeah. like real flourishing and ideas about flourishing that is like semantic linguistic material all these things and that it like prevents i i think i think he would argue empirically prevents actual human flourishing and maybe... if we take psychoanalysis to be an empirical or quasi-empirical project but i think he i think he would say though that the that that's the kind of like empirical like reality that falls out of it the the prob like one of the problems that psychoanalysis yeah. lets us see is the empirical reality or it's a little bit of an explanation about why humans suffer and yeah. he makes that mm -hmm. that's where the weird animal human distinction comes to it's like the humans are the only species where we fail to like flourish robustly or whatever that like that like most people fail uh -huh. at flourishing as opposed to, I guess, like most animals don't. Although, like, how would you possibly know that? I don't know. And the, no, totally. I and the, like the. La I th I think that. I mean, I think most people would feel comfortable with that right. claim, but I'm just like, I don't have enough information. Right. Well, I'm I'm agnostic about. It. I don't want to. Uh, I would go so far as to say, like, animal flourishing is is, is oftentimes stunted by so-called human flourishing. Um, yes. But you know, here if we're thinking, uh, you know, maybe if, maybe our takeaway. Uh, would be, uh, and even if Santner isn't necessarily a part of this, this group, but, but uh, perhaps, you know, uh, white folks or academics or otherwise should stop telling marginalized folks how to flourish or the ways of flourishing, um, considering that. But if, I think he would there agree are with certain that. Kinds of er which is why, I was just saying, yeah, yeah. even if he's Me not too. a part of that group in which he's saying, oh, this is how you should flourish, um, but participate in a, you know, at least in an intellectually honest dialogue about how systems of power and history has operated in such a way that prevent to, flourishing to prevent flourishing and to create certain attachments that would otherwise prevent flourishing in everyday mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. it's like this right. we've created these forms we've created an atmosphere in which you are cre are in which you are making certain kinds of attachments that that's that's how you have to get so, by so i guess in that sense maybe he would listen to our conversation and be like duh duh colonialism and slavery like duh 
And then it's like, well, it's then, implied. Well, then write it. You know, it's yeah. like, don't let the words do the, ma- the masking. <laughs> write it in there. Flesh it out. <laughs> Ooh, uh, well, we have to end Balance on that note. That's perfect. I know. Oops. Flesh it out. <laughs> Always already podcast out. Um, no, we'll take a break. We hey, have hey, a we have an advice up. question from an actual listener to answer. Sweet. <laughs> we'll uh, take a break and be right back. We'll be right back after this. Sponsors, And we're back, and we have a listener question. Um, I didn't ask them whether they wanted to be anonymous or not, so we'll have them be anonymous. All right, it's a little long, so buckle in. I have a career advice question. So I've recently been considering going back to school to finish my bachelor's that I abandoned in the early 2000s with the possibility of going on to a master's after that. I've been trying to teach myself anything that interests me since I dropped out of college and I was kicked into high gear in recent years. I'm starting to feel like I don't just have, like I just don't have the broad foundation of knowledge to understand what I am studying. I have no doubt that going back to school would be a good choice if money were no problem. Unfortunately, we live under capitalism and it would be foolish to pay for school if it were not part of a longer term career move. So what are the job prospects for somebody with a degree in history philosophy or theory my understanding is that uh or wait i'm currently making 25 dollars an hour and no benefits as a carpenter um how does that compare what about online degrees are they a good option for somebody who needs to keep working through school how do grad schools look at someone with an online ba so there's one more question that we'll save for the end but that's a lot of questions I mean, I have so many thoughts on the topic. It's also hard to say because things change so fast, so drastically. I mean, the, like, advice I would I got on those questions a decade ago no longer applies because the conditions have changed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the way universities are structured has changed. The kinds of jobs that people even do in general have changed. Um, So there's, like, a kind of romantic answer, which is, like, you know, do everything you can to expose yourself to the, like, widest range of, you know, ideas and people and pedagogies. And then there's, like... But there are obvious practical concerns and material constraints that I think should not be under underplayed. Mm-hmm. I, that's sort of unsatisfying, but I think... And I don't... I don't know. I mean, it's so hard, too, because we're all enmeshed in the, like, wanting to really live true academic lives and it's Hashtag fucking hard it's hard Lauren yeah i don't know what kind of job i'll apply to if the academic job search doesn't work out but presumably there are people who are interested in the kinds of skills you learn with training in philosophy or history or theory right mm-hmm. so it might not be like a one-to-one transferable like insert neoliberal buzzword here but like you do learn things about things other than the stuff you study (laughs) when you go to school which are things you can box up and take away and apply in all in all the good (laughs) well i I think that's right right. as a good worker that's such Uh, a useless answer i apologize i don't know it's a hard question i totally sympathize with that struggle i think it's it's real it's a real a real struggle you know getting a bachelor's degree is about learning you know and having that so-called toolbox of analytic skills to make sense of otherwise complex scenarios and worlds so 
Yeah, if you have a, a bachelor's in philosophy, you learn all kinds of different things that might otherwise only turn into a maybe a barb discussion about Hegelianism, or you might learn... Sounds like you certain, speak from experience. Right, I know nothing <laughs> about these things. Um, or it turns into you know a foundational skill set about learning how to... Um, think critically on the spot, come up with answers in, you know, an area that you are particularly interested in that doesn't necessarily have to be philosophical, if nonprofit work and working in, you know, to the, for the service of others um, falls into that purview, then thinking on the spot and having the ability to um, analyze uh, outside of sort of like a script, yeah, definitely helpful. And that's what, you know, philosophy and history degrees would offer. Going into a master's degree, I mean, sometimes that, for me, going into a master's degree was just a prelude to going to a PhD program. And so oftentimes when some of my students ask about going to a master's degree, I'm like, do you plan on going to further your um, PhD um, or to get a PhD? Or do you want to do something specifically within, you know, I hate to say the private sphere, but uh, if you go into, I always try to push people in the direction of nonprofit work. Um, so I'm like, if you go, a master's degree is very helpful in nonprofit work. It gets you, um, at least you're demonstrating a commitment that nonprofits are very much interested in because they're looking for committed people to a particular cause in, you know, in a, in a, a country right now that's in a globe, but a country right now that's kind of, you know, fucked up. Yeah, Just I mean, there are also some, <laughs> like, Am I allowed to say that? you know, there are, yeah. like, alumni <laughs> networks, right, that, like... There are also, like, just kind of basic material uh, benefits from doing a master's program in a specific field that are just, like, the people who teach there know people in the field. There are alumni networks. It's, like, a way to get into something that you wouldn't have a leg in the door otherwise, right? It's kind of, like, a weird – but, you know, it depends where you go and, like, what kind of thing you're interested in doing. It's a mixed bag. Uh, I don't know, actually, though, how grad schools look at – online yeah i don't know either i mean uh, my degrees. guess would be that for master's programs like unless you're it's like the ivies they probably don't care that much yeah right and this mm-hmm. is partly because like a lot of places masters are money making yes. profit extraction programs right which is another thing to consider about doing a master's degree at most places um like if it was a phd if this person wanted to go do a PhD eventually, I think that doing a master's is crucial because I do think that PhD programs, which are elitist, and like I think that's just kind of a brute fact, will look down on an online BA mm-hmm. in a way that master's programs might not. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had another thought, but it's I lost it. So we're not being totally pessimistic, but at least giving some like – you know, there's, cr- there's well, crucial also, we, insight. You know, one of the things that we all really care about in our own academic careers is teaching and to, to us, like, the value of what you get out of a classroom mm-hmm. with the kinds of things that we think are important to learn is, is like, in a way, mm-hmm. the thing, like, the thing of life that we all <laughs> care about, right? So in that and, kind of romantic and way the where we all are like, yes, do getting it. Getting to the thing. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's both the thing and the mode. Yeah. To getting to the thing. <laughs> ha ha. Very Ooh, clever. Um, so I don't know. So, like, I have this – and having, to, you know, taught at CUNY for a long time, you get people who come back after long hiatuses, and it's, like, it's a joy to see people – who come from different places and who have different experiences, like sit together and talk about the same text and then like 
take it away, take it with them when they go and whatever, yeah. whatever that means. Not, a not a boxed joy. like neoliberal way, but literally like walk out with that thing like in them in this mm-hmm. new way that it wasn't before and whatever. That sounds cheesy, but I no, think that there's joy. something about that that's like, it's a, an unreplicable experience. Totally. <laughs> and that is something that like does just like, the material part counts, so too does that. Yeah. All right, they have one more part to their question that is um, insightful and hilarious and depressing that we should read. Yes. Does online education mean that someone in a rural area like mine will be able to enter academia or have an academic career without moving away, or just that everyone is going to get replaced by robot professors? Oh, interesting. I, th- I think the answer is uh, a little robot. bit of both. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is I mean, the adjuncts problem... and robot professors. They'll tend yeah. they'll tenure the robots and make the humans be adjuncts. Mm-hmm. The problem is that universities are businesses now. So what they're go- what's going to happen is, however, people can save money, which is kind of the shitty answer, but the true answer. I know so a lot robot of... troughs. Well, yeah. I know that there are a lot of computer robot, science bot, classes. Bot, 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 I just bot, bot, read, bot, like bot, I was reading like in higher ed, like Chronicle of Higher Ed. What was that? I don't know. Robot like, prop, robot echo, prop. Echo. Um, where there was like yeah. metallic and there exactly. was some kind of um, it's my dubstep single. It was a algorithmic kind of <laughs> dubstep single. Oh, <laughs> robot props are metallic. The new oh. hit single from uh-huh. E Crandall. E Crandall. Uh, <laughs> but that's a thing. So robot props are a thing. Um, computer programs, teaching and grading. Um, at least in computer science, uh, massive online courses. And grading, then, yes, mm-hmm. is I think like that's that's the that's the part where robots are already taking over. And then because we've had that for a while in Scantron machines, to be perfectly honest, although they're not thinking machines, they are nevertheless. Do uh, they're doing things? Well, are I they, suppose are they, they are. Thinking? Are they? No, they. That's a great question. I think that, I they think thinking? they're thinking. I think you're being a little too uh, humanistic. I am. Judgment. You know what? I accept that criticism. Be all men. <laughs> all animals flourish. All animals flourish. And robots. <laughs> Um, <laughs> forms of life, folks. Forms of life. Wittgenstein. Anyway, uh, yeah. Robots. I, Robot I think, Wittgenstein. I think robots and Wittgenstein hand in hand. That is, was... that, is that a good, uh, good uh, yes. piece of advice? Robots <laughs> and Wittgenstein. Robotic. You're welcome no. for answering you're, you're your welcome. question. You're yeah. welcome for that image, robotic Wittgenstein. That doesn't make an image to anyone <laughs> well in my head it does well like, i actually cool. i wonder if so existential comics has maybe done robot wittgenstein oh there's gotta be one that would be amazing i know vic i know they do wittgenstein occasionally and robots occasionally so it's possible they have intersected i feel like that was not a satisfying set of answers to those very important okay questions. so the important yeah so uh getting yeah. an online bachelor's degree yeah you might i i honestly like I had to move away even without having an online, like going online for my degree. Like I moved away for the PhD program. I felt as though maybe it was because that tends to be more about where do you fit, where, you know, what kinds of intellectual cultures are are there at the university that you or department that you want to um, uh, work in. And then, of course, the professors you want to work with. Um, And so I don't know if an online bachelor is going to hurt. But I think that, John, you were right previously to say, I think in the elitist institutions, it would probably be a demerit um, in the way that they view, you know, 
academic. But I do like think academic. like legitimately more so for PhD programs than yes. MA programs. Yes. And like yeah. so like an online BA might make sense for this person to like finish out their college credits. And also if they're you know they're I'm assuming they're going to be thoughtful about what program they do and like credentialing and all of that kind of stuff and accreditation and all of those sorts of mm-hmm. questions, right? Um, and reputation and so on. Yeah, and, I mean, and you could like, write a really killer essay about, you know, whatever, exactly. whatever reason exactly. why you took a break and exactly. then you went back and you did this thing. I mean, there are like there's are, there, yeah. I mean, it's part of your story, your academic journey, your totally. drive to finish, and it's like it's compelling. I mean, anything that's like anytime you read a personal essay and you feel like the person comes up comes alive off the page, it's like that. I mean. The other things are just details, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And then my other thought is that this goes back to how you started, Emily, and that is that, like, so much changes so quickly that an online BA, like, helps defer perhaps some of the larger, harder questions for this person to have more time to think about. Yeah. Like, does their current, like, carpentry situation change? Like, do new prospects of, of that become available? Like, does neoliberalism become more or less neoliberal? Like, right. Do the robots take over? Like, all of these sorts of questions, like, you know, granted over however much time this person would need to finish out an, uh, their BA, like, are not going to be totally answered. Right. But... That also defers some of the harder decisions a little bit. Yeah. Agreed. All right. I agree. Okay. Thanks for the question. Yeah, yeah me that's too. That's a really good, hard set of, and thoughtful set of questions. It was, it was pretty great. Um, oh, and this person has emailed us before. We answered a question of theirs, like, uh, about a year ago, it seems like. so. Okay. All right. Um so I think we're we're probably it's about time to to say goodbye to the yeah. listeners. Yeah. Oh, this was fun. I missed it. Me too. Hmm. Um, well, that means hopefully there are more podcasts in the future. Absolutely. Coming great Definitely. listeners. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We suck. Sorry, guys. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dissertating well, is really isolating. And like the fact that we now all live in different places too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh. But... We all used to spit, spit in the Sitza office, is what I was about to Uh-oh. say. Freudian <laughs> slip, Alex <laughs> slip. What would Freud say? What would all Lacan things. say? What would Lacan say? Um, Let's ask him. All right, what else? What else? What else do we need to do? Sign off. I forget how to sign off. Hello, um, Emily. You have a standards, <clears throat> uh, not salutation. I oh feel right. Like uh, what's the, what is the opposite of a salutation? Uh, Closing. Right, but what's the fancy like salutation esque <sighs> word? There's got to be one, right? Uh, anyway, write us. Maybe Validation. don't suggest a text for us to. No, read suggest less. a text for us. <laughs> Su- suggest a text. That's always welcome. <laughs> and become you a can patron. Always listen Skip to this whole spiel in the credits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot. Oh, you're so fancy. We have credits now. I love everything. Okay. I think it's salutation wait, wait, and valediction. Oh, okay. Happy anniversary. Always already. Oh, happy anniversary. Happy Uh, Thank you, everybody, and have an always-already day. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Padoni Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, John McMahon, and me, Altman. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. 
Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, or dreams to analyze to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon. Contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast. And on that note, we'd like to take this chance to thank our patrons. In the Always Already Circle of Trust, we'd like to thank Matthew, Kristen, Catherine, and also Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF from Canada category, we'd like to thank Dana. In the Friend of the Podcast category, we'd like to thank Steve and Angel. And of the folks that are uh, supporting us but not claiming any rewards, we'd like to thank Bunny and Laika. You should also go onto iTunes or your favorite uh, podcast app machine and uh, give us a good rating, leave us some comments, and uh, help other people find the show. As always, our intro music is from Leah Dion, her static loops. Um, in between segments, you heard Mirrors from front of the podcast Bad Infinity, and you're listening to B cover landslide right now. Until next time, have an always ready day. My NPR voice. Rachel and I used to practice our NPR voices. It's fleshy. It's fleshy. Okay. That's going on outtakes. Yeah, most definitely.